the last time I heard uh, that rendition of Psalm 128 was 22 years ago when Allison and I were married on a bright, sunny morning, June 29, 1991. And one of... Uh, Allison's childhood friends sang uh, that rendition of Psalm 128 at our wedding. So I took a little trip down memory lane while uh, Shelley was singing, but I'm back now. (laughs) And uh, don't worry, and invite you to turn with me to that psalm. Again, it is Psalm 128. And follow along as I read it publicly, remembering, bearing in mind, constantly keeping in view that we are reading and hearing the very Word of God. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. The place to begin is with a question. What is the subject What is the theme of this song? It's actually quite obvious because the expression, a a particular expression, is used four times. Look at verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Look at verse 2, second half of the verse. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Verse 4, the beginning of the verse. Behold. Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Verse 5, the Lord bless you from Zion. So again I ask, what is the theme of this psalm? What is the psalmist's subject matter as he takes up pen under the inspiration of the Spirit of God and writes these words, this lovely, enrapturing psalm? It is, simply put, blessedness, or we might use the word happiness, what it is to be happy, what it is to be blessed. Now, that is a theme, that is a subject matter which should immediately grab and should hold our attention. Why do I say that? Simply for the following reason. Happiness stands at the center of human experience. It stands as the focal point of human experience. Happy birthday. Happy anniversary. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. And on and on and on it goes. We are a society by nature absorbed with this great all-encompassing theme. Blessedness. Happiness. Parents try to cultivate it. Governments try to promise it. Poets try to define it. Songs try to express it. Businesses try to market it. Commercials try to sell it. And yet it is not found in possessions. It is not found in experiences. It is not found in causes. It is not found in achievements. It is not found in relationships. And because most people err when it comes to identifying where happiness, where blessedness is found, they gravitate to one of these things. And in the end, happiness proves to be what? Elusive. Elusive. They never quite get it. The psalmist makes it clear elsewhere, Psalm 144, blessed. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. There you have it. The essence of biblical blessedness. Or to use the other word, the essence of biblical happiness. Blessed, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. There's a very simple reason for this. 
uh, it's this, your soul, your soul is the reason why happiness proves elusive. It is the reason why happiness ultimately is not found in possessions. It is not found in experiences. It is not found in causes. It is not found in achievements. And it is not found in relationships. The answer is your soul. Now, the soul is spiritual. Therefore, the soul cannot. It's an impossibility. We've entered the realm of the entirely impossible. The soul is spiritual. Therefore, it cannot find satisfaction. It cannot find happiness. It cannot find meaning, fulfillment, blessedness in things which are material. It just cannot do it. The soul is eternal. Therefore, it cannot find blessedness. It cannot find satisfaction. Again, we are in the realm, the sphere of the entirely impossible. It cannot find happiness. Where? In things which are temporal. Here today, gone tomorrow. And your soul, friend, it is absolutely exceptional. Fashioned in the very image of God. And the soul cannot, however hard we may try and we may commit our entire lives to this pursuit, our souls cannot find happiness in the trivial. Did you get those three? They are paradigm shifting. They are worldview shifting. They are life transforming, understanding who we are. That the soul is spiritual and will not be satisfied by the material, the physical. The soul is eternal and will not be satisfied by the temporal. And the soul is exceptional. And so it cannot find satisfaction in the trivial. Blessed. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord, who is spiritual, who is eternal, and who is exceptional. A soul created in the image of God. The purpose of the image is what? It is a means to an end. What? That we might delight in God, thereby glorifying Him forever. That is the road the psalmist leads us along. The path he leads us down. The the area in in which he leads us, he opens up to us in this psalm. And he teaches us in particular three overarching truths concerning this theme of blessedness. And that's what we're going to ponder and consider and wrestle with this Lord's day. The first theme is this. He shows us, he teaches us something concerning the object of this blessedness. Where is it found? The object of this blessedness. And this comes out in the very first verse. He declares, and listen, pay close attention to his words and the order of his words. Blessed, there's our theme. The object of this blessedness is everyone who what? Who fears the Lord. Who walks in his ways. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Now that begs an obvious question. And a question we need to, we need to wrestle with. Spend some time on. Because it is a subject sorely misunderstood in our day. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Uh, What exactly does it mean to fear God? We went down this avenue not too long ago. As a matter of fact, I think it was just in July, two months ago. When we were studying in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And there in the 12th chapter of 1 Samuel, we read that the people of Israel, we discover that they have sinned. They've sinned grievously. They've sinned seriously. How? By requesting a king. It wasn't the request of a king in and of itself that was so sinful. It was what that request implied. That they were rejecting the Lord God Almighty as their king. And so God sends his prophet Samuel with the prophetic voice of of condemnation and judgment. And he calls upon the people to fear the Lord and to obey him. And to confirm God's displeasure with the people's sin, God sends a horrific thunderstorm. 
And the people are prostrate on the ground before this, this, this tempest, before this physical, visible manifestation, tangible manifestation of the glory of God among them. And they are, we read in 1 Samuel 12, greatly gripped with fear. Samuel says to them, do not fear. He has just told them, fear the Lord and obey him. Now he tells them not to fear the Lord. And then he goes on in his discourse and he again states only, fear the Lord and serve him. And so what do we have in that context emerging? We have this truth that we, we, we dare not miss this. There are actually two ways to fear God. There are actually two ways to fear God. There is, we're going to put it over here, we're going to categorize these two to make sure we are crystal clear. There is a wrong way to fear God. And we're going to label it ungodly fear. And we're going to put over here the right way to fear God, and we're going to label it godly fear. And so a wrong way to fear God, a right way to fear God, ungodly fear, godly fear. What is the difference between these two? Let me summarize it for us as follows. Ungodly fear stems, it arises from, it flows from God wrongly Godly fear stems from, is given birth by what? God rightly perceived. Let me expand on that. Because God is wrongly perceived, ungodly fear compels an individual to do what? Run away from God. When God is rightly perceived, godly fear causes the individual to do what? draw near to God. Let me build on it with a third truth. Ungodly fear is based on a legal relationship which we want to escape. Godly fear is based on a family relationship we want to cultivate. When you boil it all down and just take away all the layers, peel away all the layers, in its simplest form, it's this. Ungodly fear flows from hate. That's it. Ungodly fear flows from hate. When we perceive that something is, is threatening us, something is going to do us harm, we perceive that something is out to get us, we fear it. Why? Because we, we hate that thing. It's threatening us. And so out of our hate, we fear it. And how do we respond? We either try to avoid it or we try to destroy it. That is ungodly fear. There might be some right here, right now, uh, as you take a survey of your life, there might very well be someone that when you think of what it means to fear God, um, that pretty well sums it up. You do what you do. You behave the way you behave. You refrain from doing Uh, certain things. Why? Because you live in fear, you live in dread of what God might do to you. My friends, that is not godly fear. That is ungodly fear, which actually flows from hate. It is a desire for what? If God were out of the way, if I could just live without God, if I didn't fear judgment, if I didn't fear that maybe he's waiting for me behind the next bush, I could live however I please. And so I go to church, and I tithe, and I do this, and I do that, and I've, I've committed myself to clean living because I'm afraid of what God might do to me if I don't. Do not mistake that for biblical, godly, holy fear. That is ungodly fear, which does not flow from love. It flows from hate. And you would be just as happy, if not happier, if the object of your fear, ungodly fear, were completely removed from the equation. As a matter of fact, that is what ungodly fear is. It is deep down inside, embedded within the depraved heart, the desire for the absolute annihilation and removal of Almighty God. Now, godly fear, completely different kettle of fish. Godly fear does not flow from hate. It flows from love. And the starting point of godly fear is what? It is a recognition, it is an understanding of God's greatness. And this is, this is it, godly fear 
it is exceedingly difficult uh, to define. I think Rosetta gave some of the women here a wonderful definition from John Flavel on Wednesday night, if I'm not mistaken, of godly fear. But it is, it, it is, it is somewhat elusive when it comes to defining it. It is much easier to describe than to define. And so let me describe godly fear for us by personalizing it. Its starting point is this. I I, I come to the understanding that God is great and I am not. That's the starting point. God is great and I am not. Can I find out the deep things of God? In other words, can I discover, can I really know the deep things of who God is? I cannot discover the one who dwells in unapproachable light. I cannot discover, find out the one whom no man can see or has seen. My mind cannot contain the one whom the universe cannot contain. I am but a small child standing upon the beach trying in vain to hold the ocean in my bucket. Can I find out the limit of the Almighty? In other words, can I discover His perfections? I have a greater chance of holding the stars in the palm of my hand, measuring the mountains on a scale, gathering the oceans in a thimble, balancing the world's forests on a needle, than I do of finding out the limit of the Almighty. It's higher than heaven. It's deeper than Sheol. It's longer than the earth. It is broader than the sea. Heaven is high, but it is limited. Sheol is deep, but it is restricted. The earth is long, but it is bounded. And the sea is broad, but it is contained. God is unlimited. He is unrestricted, he is unbounded, and he is uncontained. He is an infinite being. This infinite being looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. Ponder this, if slight impulses from God cause such devastation, what would be the effect of the full manifestation of his power? This infinite being determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. His knowledge is inexhaustible. His judgments are unsearchable. And his ways are inscrutable. I am amazed. I am amazed when I consider this infinite being's simplicity. That is an old theological term. God's simplicity, meaning he is undivided, meaning his every thought and every action involves the whole man. He simultaneously gives total and undivided attention to everything and everyone. And so God is as much here right now as he is halfway across the state, as he is halfway across the country, as he is halfway around the world, as he is in the far reaches of the galaxy. He is undivided. The whole of him in his entirety, his thoughts and his actions are focused in every place at every moment, undivided. That is why the Lord Jesus celebrates that wonderful truth that not one sparrow, Not one worthless, meaningless sparrow falls to the ground apart from his father. Not one raindrop falls. Not one snowflake lands on the earth. Not one blade of grass grows. Everything has God's undivided attention. I'm amazed when I consider God's sovereignty. He is the first cause of every action. Every motion, every impulse, every feeling, every thought, every breath. I do not breathe apart from God. I do not move apart from God. I do not speak apart from God. I do not think apart from God. 
He is the first mover. He is the first cause of all things. He rules fully and completely, and his reign is unchallenged, unhindered, and unending. I tremble before this infinite being because he will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That phrase, secret thing, terrifies me. I tremble before this infinite being, for he will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He is a perfect judge whose knowledge of the evidence is inexhaustible and whose power to execute sentence is unstoppable. And I tremble. I tremble when I realize that I, Stephen Yule, have placed myself where this infinite being deserves to be, on the throne. Oh, now we arrive at the heart of sin. I have placed myself where this infinite being alone deserves to be, on the throne. And I tremble when I consider that this infinite being has placed himself where I deserve to be, on the cross. And by his sovereign grace, this infinite being has made me one with his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the privileges, all of the benefits... All of the blessings flow to me from Calvary through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And His forgiveness supersedes my sinfulness. His merit eclipses my guilt. His righteousness hides my vileness. And I am overwhelmed. And from a deep sense of awe and reverence, I am inclined to do what pleases Him and avoid what displeases Him. In the words of the psalmist, back in 128 verse 1, I am inclined to walk in his ways. I submit to you that that and that alone is the fear of the Lord. And I'm going to ask you, actually let me begin with what I'm not going to ask you. I'm not asking you if if you have asked Jesus into your heart. I always need to say this because it sounds harsh. I don't want to be harsh. I say it in love. I don't care. What do you mean I don't care? I'm not asking if you have asked Jesus into your heart. I'm not asking if you have said the sinner's prayer. I am not asking if you have been baptized. I am not asking if you have heeded an altar call. I am not asking... If you have a date written on the inside of your Bible, I am not asking if your mother assures you you are saved. I am not asking if some pastor in the past pronounced you saved. I am asking, do you fear the Lord God Almighty and walk in His ways? If the answer to that question is no, and yet you profess to be a Christian, You are lost in a world of self-deception. I will repeat that. Do you fear the Lord God Almighty and walk in His ways? If the answer to that question is no, yet you profess to be a Christian, you are lost in a world of self-delusion and self-deception. Fear the Lord. And walk in His ways. This, there are times where things just converge in my mind, uh, in my life, in my experience. This past week, as I, as I worked through this psalm and as I went back again, time and time again, and, and different passages of Scripture, what it means to fear the Lord, this converged with the news of a, of a young man a man who I taught for two years in Bible college, a man who actually spent time on the mission field, and a man who has now progressively over time abandoned the faith and gone public, I am no longer a Christian. I vowed long ago I would not engage in things on the internet, wherever it is, but I broke my vow this past week. 
and I engaged on the internet. Not so much for his benefit, although yes, it was in view, but for the benefit of the sheep. Sheep looking on who know him. Sheep troubled and agitated and stirred by, by, by what's happening and, and, his, and now his public renunciation of the faith and engaged in this and, and wrestled with this. And, 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 it, and it just hit me again like a bolt of lightning that we in the church, in the moment, this day, right now, perhaps the greatest challenge, uh, the greatest struggle, um, the greatest issue, the greatest problem, the, the problem of the moment right now is what? Is that people have been convinced and people have been assured that a notional belief will save them. No, it won't. Oh, the demons know the truth. The demons believe and they tremble. It doesn't do anything for them, friend. No, a notional belief does not save us. How many in the professing church believe that? How many in the professing church, this idea that we're saved by a notional belief is actually fueled by what they hear from the pulpit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? A notional belief will not save you from the wrath to come. The issue is this. Do you fear the Lord and walk in His ways? Have you repented of your sin and do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you one with Him by faith? Yes, still far from perfect. Yes, still a sinner, a sinner saved by grace. But is this the reality by which you orient your life? Is this what excites you? Is this what stirs you? Is this what moves you? And however imperfectly and however feebly, out of this great realization that I have placed myself where this infinite being alone deserves to be on the throne, and he has placed himself where I alone deserve to be on the cross. Do I tremble before that truth? Oh, does that shake me to the very core of my being? And does it compel me and move me to desire to know this perfect being's will and to do it? And to live it out, however imperfect that might be in my life. Yes, I am speaking to you. There are some right here I could name you. I won't dare because I'm a coward, but I could name you. I am speaking to you. I do have you in mind right now as I say this. And I plead with you. I beg with you to awaken from your slumber. And understand that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. This world is passing. This world is fading by and by. And one thing will remain. All things will be summed up in the beloved Son of God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the object of blessedness. Blessed. Oh, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. He's not done. He introduces a second subject, the fruit of this blessedness. It brings us into the realm of verses 2 through 4. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And so verse 4 is what? A repetition of verse 1. Verse 1, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. He introduces the theme. Verse 4, he reiterates it. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And so we have these parentheses, right? Around verses 2 and 3. The fruit, the fruit of blessedness. You see, when we fear the Lord, how do we live? Follow it through. It's actually quite, quite logical and quite simple. When we fear the Lord, we walk in His ways. To walk in God's ways 
is to conform every facet, aspect of our lives to his perfect will. His perfect will is revealed in his holy word. And so to fear the Lord is to walk in his ways. It is to harmonize our lives with God's perfect will. In other words, it is to harmonize every aspect of our lives, bring it into submission to what is ultimately good, what is ultimately real, what is ultimately true, what is ultimately perfect. And the result is what? Despite what happens in life, the result is joy. The result is peace. And the result is happiness. Where there is no fear of the Lord, let's face it, can't deny it, the opposite is true. Chaos. Mayhem. I've driven in some pretty crazy places around this globe. One of the craziest was Luanda, capital city of Angola. And uh, no one pays any attention to the speed limit because there isn't one. And uh, there are occasional stoplights, but most of the time there's no electricity. They aren't working. And when they do work, a red light, it's a mere suggestion. It's up to you whether you want to stop or not. Staying on the right side of the road, entirely optional. And I was in Luanda for a few months teaching at a Bible school, and the Bible school was located a half hour from the home where, where Allison and I were staying. And I would leave in the morning and rush hour, and some of those intersections, when all these cars, automobiles, and trucks converged on the intersection, absolute chaos, mayhem. Why? Because there were no rules. I was driving an old beat-up Land Rover with a very functional horn, and the depraved side of me came out. I actually kind of enjoyed it. The challenge of working my way through that, with that tank on wheels and the horn blaring through absolute mayhem. You see, where there is no fear of the Lord, there is no walking in his ways. There is no orienting our life in accordance with what is perfect. There is no harmonizing our life according to his word, his law, his will. And the result is mayhem. We see it on a cultural level. We see the mayhem when there is no fear of the Lord. We see it on a cultural level. A culture, a society void of the fear of the Lord. A society which functions with no acknowledgement, no orientation as to the existence of God is a society, it is a culture which quickly loses what? All sense of the sacred. First thing to go is religion. Religion becomes a mere form without any substance. This loss of sacredness is felt in every sphere, particularly in the home. It weakens the institution of marriage. The result is an accelerated divorce rate, a rise in casual cohabitation, and a rise in alternative relationships. This weakening of the family unit results in public contempt for authority, which leads to a sharp rise in juvenile delinquency. This weakening of the family unit also results in a steady decline in a man's natural motivation to provide, to protect, and to procreate. In other words, manhood is eviscerated of manliness. This kind of culture becomes absorbed with the inordinate pursuit of pleasure, sexual or otherwise. It is marked by growing apathy when it comes to civic duty and responsibility. It is marked by a decline in economic productivity and academic creativity. And all of this leads to an unmanageable increase in public spending because the government must compensate for the social inertia. It leads to a huge increase in military expenditure to fight real and imaginary foreign enemies. While the most greatest threat, enemy, moral decadence goes unchecked and unchallenged at home. What am I describing? I'm actually describing Rome. Some of you probably weren't thinking of Rome. You were thinking of a place a little closer to home. If the shoe fits, it fits. Where there is no fear of the Lord, there is mayhem, cultural mayhem. Where there is no fear of the Lord, there is mayhem, personal 
mayhem. Show me a life where there is no fear of the living God, no desire to walk in His ways, and I will show you disorientation. I will show you confusion. I will show you strife. I will show you grief. I will show you mayhem. The evidence is all around us. Dare I say the evidence is on our own lives if we only care to look. But here's the promise. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. This fear, this blessedness, it consists in what? A measure of fruit. Now. The Apostle Paul actually declares that very thing. Listen to these words. It's in 1 Timothy 4, 8. Godliness. You know what godliness is? It's simply the fear of God. Simply the New Testament equivalent. It means exactly the same thing. To be godly is to fear God. Godliness is of value in every way. Hear these words. As it holds promise for the present life. Right now. And for the life to come. The psalmist has what in view? The present life. He's not denying the other life to come. That, that's, that's, that's the greater promise, certainly. Any blessing we enjoy now, any fruit we experience now, is simply projecting us where? Into eternity. The fulfillment of the promise, that blessing that is coming. The meek shall inherit the earth. But even now, right now, when the fear of the Lord takes hold and an individual walks in God's ways, it holds promise for now, the present life. And what the psalmist does in verses 2 and 3 is actually fascinating. He simply takes us by the hand and he walks us, leads us into two spheres. The first, verse 2, is the sphere of work, labor. And sphere number two in verse three is what? Family. We hear those two, labor and family, and our minds should immediately go back where? To the book of Genesis. We should immediately trace our steps back to the Garden of Eden. And we should recall, we should remember that these two basic institutions, marriage and work, were instituted by God in the Garden in the age of innocence. Both were corrupted by what? The fall. And both are restored in whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we are in Christ, the fear of God has taken hold and we are walking in His ways. We have just a taste, just a glimmer. The fullness awaits the future. But we have even now in the present life, what? The curse turned into a measure of blessing. Fruitful labor, verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Oh, bosses are unreasonable, so unreasonable. Employees are equally irresponsible. Deadlines are impossible. Meetings are postponed. Messages are lost. Tasks are mundane. Expectations are unreasonable. Conditions are oppressive. Contractors don't keep their word Co-workers stab in the back, and on and on and on it goes. Friends, welcome to life under the curse. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, where the fear of God has taken hold, it transforms our view of work entirely. We understand that work is a divine institution. We understand that we are called to work, to labor, and we understand that one of the principal primary ways in which we glorify God is in how we do our work. And despite the consequences of the fall, despite all the stress and anxiety, despite the problems, and despite the hardships, that elevates, that truth elevates work into the realm of the divine. And it becomes what? Sacred. That is a blessing. Verse 3, the realm now is what? Family. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Word pictures speaking of prosperity. Yet we look at the reality. Unrealistic expectations. Abrasive personalities. Selfish attitudes. Harsh words. Biting sarcasm. 
Long days, sleepless nights, dirty diapers, feuding siblings, and on and on and on it goes. Welcome to life under the curse. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? Everything gets transformed. What was cursed becomes actually what? A blessing. It transforms the relationship between husband and wife because a husband and wife now understands what? That the gospel is actually embedded in their relationship. That they actually point. uh, It's not really about them. It actually points, transcends them and points to a far greater relationship, the relationship between Christ and his church. The marriage mirrors that. It reflects that. And so that, that's transformative. Marriage, a chore? Marriage, a burden? Marriage, something to be taken lightly in and out at a, at a whim? No, it elevates marriage, the relationship between husband and wife, into the realm of the divine and infuses it with eternal value and worth. It transforms the relationship between parent and child, doesn't it? Just as labor work is a divine calling, raising children is what? It is a divine calling. All you with a quiverful. You need to go back to last week's sermon to fill in the blanks surrounding that one. All you with a quiverful, those perhaps whose quiver isn't quite as full, full enough, that we parenthood, is a divine calling, a divine appointment. How do we glorify God? Oh, we're so idealistic. I know I am. We think in terms of the grandiose. I must be doing this. I must be going there. And all the while, we ignore what God has simply dropped in our laps. Your work and your family. Your work and your family. You want to glorify me? Do your work as unto me. You want to glorify me? Raise your kids as unto me. You want to glorify me? Do you really want to know what blessedness is? Do you want to live in the fear of the Lord and walk in my ways? Just look no farther than these two spheres, these two divine appointments, these two divine callings, your job, your labor, what you do. Do it as unto the Lord with joy, knowing that you're serving and glorifying Him. And your children, when you're up at 4.30 in the morning, as someone who will remain nameless was this morning, not me, someone else, bless her, you remember what? This is divine calling. This is a joy. Oh. <laughs> this is a delight. Because I am serving the Lord God Almighty in a meaningful, tangible way in raising up, desiring, and by His good grace, raising up a holy seed for Him. There's a third theme here. We're not quite done, but I'm going to move quickly because time has hurried on. Third theme is this, the experience of blessedness. So we had the object of blessedness, verse 1. The fruit of blessedness, verses 2 through 4. And so there, the the, the, the psalmist is basically describing the nature of blessedness. And then in verses 5 and 6, he shifts gears and he actually prays. And here we have the experience of blessedness. And pay pay careful attention to what he says. The Lord, uh, the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. It's a prayer. It's a prayer that consists of three parts. Quickly, part number one is this. As he he goes on in this prayer to, to, to invoke the Lord's blessing, he identifies the origin of this blessing. Verse five. The Lord bless you. And so ultimately it comes from the Lord. We know that. That's actually not what, we're, where I'm, where I'm, what I'm going after here. It's the next phrase. The Lord bless you from Zion. What is Zion? Zion is the temple. Zion is a dwelling place of God. For us, New Testament believers, this side of the cross, Zion is the church. God's holy habitation. We, as Christians, believers, are being built up into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. This blessing, this blessedness, yes, it's something God bestows. How? What is the means by which He bestows this blessing? 
He does so through the church, its offices, its ordinances, the Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns and he rules right now. He does so by his word and he does so by his spirit in the church. If we want to grow in the fear of the Lord, it will happen in the church as we hear the word of God expounded, the very word of God proclaimed. If we want to walk in his ways, it will happen in the context of the church. If we want to grow in godliness, it will take place within the confines of the church. The church is God's appointed instrument whereby he works now upon this earth, accomplishing his eternal plans and purposes. The Lord bless you, but never lose sight of this, friend. The Lord bless you from Zion. I think it is worth saying. Uh, the, The emphasis, the recapturing of the emphasis that has been placed on the family in the last decade is excellent. Praise God for it within, within evangelical circles. And the books and the videos and the conferences and everything else, we thank the Lord for it every day. We've recaptured that emphasis on the family. And yet, as with all good things, what happens? We're, we're inclined to do what? Run to an extreme. And with evangelicalism, what do we see more and more and more now? We see the isolation of the family unit. That in actual fact, this is the mindset. We bless the church through our family. And if we don't see fit to do so, we just start meeting in our living room. And dad's the pastor. And we see it more and more. And we will see it more and more. And we have inverted God's ways. God blesses the family by the church. God blesses believers through the church. The Lord God Almighty blesses from Zion. It's origin. Notice, secondly, the content of this blessing. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. I think that takes us back to verse 2, fruitful labor. And may you see, he wants us to see two things. Verse 6, may you see your children's children. That takes us back to verse 3, a fruitful family. And so he wants us to see these things. Yes, he wants us to experience those things, the content of this blessing. And then notice, thirdly, the focus of this blessing. Right at the end of verse 6. Peace be upon Israel. Very important, and we dare not miss it. Difficult for us to grasp. It actually relates to what I just said moments ago. We are so individualistic in our thinking. The Bible is not individualistic. The Bible is very corporate. Blessedness is not primarily personal. Blessedness is primarily corporate. The Lord bless you from Zion. That's collective, the church. Verse 6, how does he end the focus of this blessing? Peace be upon Israel. And so maybe, you know, you're thinking to yourself, Stephen, I, I do fear the Lord. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't mastered it. Who has? And uh, I'm struggling to walk in his ways, but I, I do fear the Lord. I'm not seeing that blessing. I tell you, home is a disaster area. I dread going home at night. And uh, work, I'm, I'm ready to hand in my notice tomorrow. It just, it's eating me up alive. When does this blessing start? When does this blessing come? Uh, why, why, why aren't I experiencing that? We're thinking individualistic. The blessing is corporate. And God blesses individuals. God blesses families. And his blessing of individuals, his blessing of families, is actually for what? It is for the blessing of the entire faith community. So your blessing may not come personally. It might not. That might not be God's plan for you. And you might struggle. And trying to reconcile, fear God, walk in his ways, this blessing. Boom, 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 boom. It just isn't adding up. Well, God will bless you. God is blessing you whether you realize it or not. The blessing is corporate. The blessing is from Zion. And the blessing is upon Israel. Did you get the three? The object of blessedness, the fruit of blessedness, the experience of blessedness. I think the best place I can end is with a question. It's simply this. Friend, are you happy? I think it's a great place to end. Are you happy? Really? Happy, or is happiness elusive? 
blessedness escapes you. If that is the case with you, I can tell you why. It is because you are looking for it in the wrong place, and you will never find it in the wrong place. It is not found in possessions, despite what our society and culture tell us. The pursuit of happiness, embedded in our cultural fabric, isn't it? But it's actually antithetical to Scripture, the understanding of our society today, because all they mean by that is what? Accumulation. Buy, 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 buy. Purchase, purchase, purchase. Collect, collect, collect. Happy, happy, happy. And it has proved bankrupt. It is not found in possessions. It is not found in experiences. Oh, the restless experientialist. It is not found in achievements. It is not found in causes. And it is not found in a new relationship. From one relationship to the next, to the next, to the next. In a vain pursuit of happiness. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. That's it. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Your soul is spiritual and can be satisfied by God alone. Your soul is eternal and can be satisfied by God alone. Your soul is exceptional and can be satisfied by its creator alone. Oh, if God were your portion, says one old author, if God were your everything, You would find in him whatever your heart could desire. You would find in him whatever could lead you to happiness. He is gold. He is silver. He is honor, delight, food, clothing, house, land, peace, wisdom, power, beauty. He is father, mother, wife, husband, mercy, love. Grace, glory, and infinitely more than all these. Our Heavenly Father, we prostrate ourselves before you uh, this day. We acknowledge all praise belongs to you. You alone are holy. You alone are righteous. You never change. There is nothing to rival your power. There is nothing that can overcome your power. At your presence, the mountains quake. The whole earth trembles. And we know, we do confess that we are guilty of running to false gods. In futility, we ask them to give us something they cannot give. We expect them to satisfy something they cannot satisfy. But those who fear you lack nothing. You satisfy us with your unfailing and unchanging and unwavering love. Point us heavenward once again as we have feasted on your word. Grant us an elevated view of you and cause our hearts to be directed toward you alone. We pray this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.